If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We have, over the last couple of weeks, done the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17. And we're picking up in verse 16 today. Um, before we get into the text, I have just a uh, quick update on what's going on with the building. So, uh, we should close on the building this week. Uh, probably on Tuesday is what my guess is. That can always mean it could be Wednesday or Thursday. But uh, we should close on the building this week, and we will own it. Yes, thank you, Sydney. No, I love it. Um, Joe and Jack and I have talked a little bit and been planning, and we want, we're, as soon as we definitely own it, which should be this week, we're going to plan in a, in, in a soon coming Sunday a, uh, a block party and picnic kind of after church on Sunday. Well, we'll go over there and we will, we will party and pray and have fun there and um, get ourselves going in that particular area. Uh, so um, be thinking about keeping your Sundays open over the next few weeks and we'll, just, we'll let you know exactly when that's going to be. Um, regarding the building, uh, just some, some more updates. We have received thus far about 100 and $38,000 um, towards the capital campaign. Total pledged thus far is about 194. So we've received well over half, uh, and we have about eight months left in the capital campaign. Uh, and that means right now uh, there's about 56,600 left. Um, now in December, we sent out letters telling all of you that had uh, pledged uh, the amount you pledged and the amount you had given and the amount that was kind of left. So please continue to strive to fulfill. Your, your pledged amount that you gave. Um, now, uh, we're really close though. It's only eight months away to finishing that and we're really close on, on collecting um, or receiving, I should say, all that has been given. Um, so, a couple other things. Uh, whenever we purchased the building, uh, we were approved to get the building into 500000 uh, and that was what they were selling it for and I wanted to talk them down and did. We uh, got them down to four fifty. Uh, just this past week, we had a broker's appraisal. They didn't require a full-on appraisal, which would have cost like three grand. I was really happy about that. They, we could use a broker, uh, someone who's been in real estate for a long time in the city, uh, and she did an appraisal. That she valued the building around six hundred and forty. Um, so, in her opinion, it's about six hundred and forty. They were selling it for five hundred. We got it for four fifty. So. And all, we're getting a really good deal. Um, and the, the location, she was pretty astounded that we're getting. Um, and the building's about 6,500 square feet right now. Um, anyway, so as we were looking at finances and how much it would cost for 450 and adding on, when we talked before about the auditorium on the front, um, we're not going to be a- able to add the auditorium on the front right away due to costs. Now, we, it was close financially, but uh, this way, delaying it, maybe a year or so, is, is just much wiser. It's much, much wiser in the way that we're going to do uh, the money. So what we're going to do is we're going to renovate this, this, the building that's, six, that's about 6,500 square feet, um, and we will have the kids' area and the foyer completely renovated to its final way it's going to look. And then there will be another area that we're going to renovate to have worship in. We'll renovate it. I mean, it will be a, a good worship space. Uh, it won't be the auditorium size. Well, the auditorium size we're, supposed to, we're hoping to get into the 200, 250-ish seats or, or chairs in there. The auditorium, 
that we're going to have, the, the renovated space inside the building there, will probably be more like this room. Uh, probably hold 100 to 110, something like that. So the way the feel of the church is going to go in moving there for the first year or so will be similar. We'll probably go straight into two services. Um, we'll have our own permanent space. We'll have a much larger kids' area, which will be nice. Um, and a foyer, like a real foyer. So um, that'll, be, that'll be pretty cool. Uh, and the hope is, the prayer is, the, 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 Lord, the Lord willing part would be that in about a year, Lord willing that we grow and we receive some more uh, monies, raise some more funds, we'll be able to attach that auditorium towards the front. Uh, and we'll have the foyer that will be there, the kids area, and then the, the old worship space, which would be our worship space that we're going to move into, would be, you know, a hundred seat room that the kids could use on Sunday mornings, the youth could use if Lord willing have a youth group on Wednesday nights, and things like that. So it, uh, it'll definitely be functional and, use, and useful. So um, we'll be hopefully uh, closing on it this week. Jordan and I will hopefully start officing in there in the next couple weeks, and six months or so, we'll start having church there. That's the the, the plan, Lord willing, it all happens like that. You never know. So, um, but I, we're feeling really good, and it's a pretty exciting times here at Remedy Church with all that's going on with the building. So, um, the, the renovation. This is this is where it gets pretty neat, and because of your your giving, uh, generous giving thus far, I've, I've given one hundred thirty eight thousand uh, dollars in the last um, year and four months or so, uh, as well as all the money that we saved for the first eight years. Um, Whenever we had budgets, we never, we never overspent. We always underspent. And all the money we saved we just, we, that, were, that, were, that were given, we just put away. We just saved for seven, eight years. So all that together um, is helping us be able to purchase the building and do the renovation without taking a loan out at all. So we're going to do the renovation with just our money. So it's pretty neat to be able uh, to be in a, in a really good place financially moving into a new building. And Lord willing, we can add an auditorium in the next year, year and a half or so. That, that would be the goal. So um, anyway, if you have any more questions about that, you can find me afterwards and we'll talk about it. Just wanted to kind of give you an update that uh, next Sunday we, we will be building owners. So um, we won't be in it, but we'll, we'll own it. Um, anyway, so that's that. Uh, now, um, as I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. So I'm going to pray. And, but before I pray, I just want to make sure you know exactly what's going on in the text, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump in. So if you remember, um, at the beginning of Acts chapter 17, Paul had gone to Thessalonica, and when he preached in Thessalonica, it says in First Thessalonians 2 that he loved them like a mother and a father, a, a picture of how much he loved them. And some received the word, but some of the Jews that were there did not. You can see it in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. So uh, that city in Thessalonica, though it was short and, and had some fruit, they did not receive him. Uh, and that's key to know because he went to Berea right after that in verses 10 through 15. And when he was in Berea, it says these, uh, these Bereans were not like the Thessalonians. They were more noble, as it says in verse 11. They received this word with all eagerness. And so he spent some time in Berea, shared the scriptures with them. But those in Thessalonica heard that he was in Berea, which is some 50 miles away, came to Berea and tried to kill him again. Uh, they didn't like him there. And so it says, uh, when he received the word that they were coming, 
that he left Berea. You can see that in verse 14. The brothers immediately sent Paul on his way away by the sea. So he got into a boat and he, no, no walking, got in a boat and left via boat. And he left Silas and Timothy there. So you have this situation where Silas and Timothy, which we talked about, were left by Paul in Berea to do ministry. And he sails some 250 miles away by himself to Athens. So when we get to chapter 17, verse 16, that's where we're picking up. Silas and Timothy and Berea, Paul is in Athens by himself. What's he going to do? So let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll start there. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that the, the full weight of all that we can see and know and understand would be present in our hearts and minds. We thank you that you inspired Luke to write these words and that they have been faithfully passed down to us, reliably passed down to us over 2,000 years. And your word is absolutely sufficient. Holy Spirit, Teach us by your spirit, by your word, to hear and receive all that we need to see in your text this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, Father, and that there would be in us all a a deep desire to see you glorified in this city. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When Paul gets to Athens, there's a key question that we need to ask. Is he going to be a tourist or is he going to be a missionary? That question is the exact same question for us. In our lifetime, here in America, are we going to be tourists? Are we going to be missionaries? Paul, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked Within him, he saw that the city was full of idols. It says that he's in Athens. I want us today to, full, to feel the full wonder and awe that Paul has as he's walking through the city of Athens and how similar it is for us as we live here in America. Athens is the center, the, the center of learning and artistry a city that exceeded all others in spiritual blindness, and they indulged in unrivaled idolatry. John Stott writes about Athens and says, there is something enthralling about Paul being in Athens, the great Christian apostle amid all the glories of ancient Greece. If you're not familiar, um, for four or five hundred years, Greek thought had ruled the day. Greek thought was the end thing. Greek thought was Unbelievable, And in Athens was the birthplace of all this. And so there was an amazing amount of history in Athens. And Paul, an, an intellectual powerhouse, could find himself in Athens absolutely enthralled with the city. The things of the city. He says this, there's something enthralling about Paul in Athens. A greater Christian apostle amid all the glories of ancient Greece. Of course, he had known about Athens since his boyhood. Everyone knew about Athens. 
Athens had been the foremost Greek city-state since the 5th century BC. Even after its incorporation to the Roman Empire, it retained a proud intellectual independence and also had become a free city. It boasted of all its rich philosophical tradition, which had been inherited from Socrates to Plato and Aristotle. People we still read today. This is where they were from. And all of its literature and all of its art and all of its notable achievements in the cause of human liberty. Even if in Paul's day, even if in Paul's day this city had lived on its great past, it still had an unrivaled reputation as the empire's intellectual metropolis. And now, for the very first time in Paul's life ever, someone who loved things like this, Paul is visiting Athens, of which he had heard so much about his entire life, arriving by the sea from the north. And he had left his friends in Berea. They had given uh, Timothy and Silas. People had given him safe es- escort to Berea, and they had gone. And here he is, all alone in Athens. He was hoping to not stay in Athens, but to return to Macedonia, north, some 250 miles, to Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, and all these cities. He wanted to return there fast. That was where he had been called, where the Macedonian man had said, Come to us. Meanwhile, as he's waiting for Silas and Timothy's arrival, he found himself alone in the cultural capital of the world. What's he going to do? Is he going to be a tourist or is he going to be a missionary? There's a lot of attraction towards the tourism. What was going to be his reaction? What should be the reaction of a Christian who visits or lives in cities that's dominated by non-Christian ideology or religion? That's the question for us right now. What are we going to do? What should be the reaction of us, Christians, who visit or live in cities that are dominated by non-Christian ideology or religion? A city that's um, aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated but at the same time, morally decadent, spiritually deceived, and spiritually dead. Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas, and this could have been a perfect time for him to finally have some downtime, finally have some me time. If there's anyone that deserved it, it's him. He had been stoned. He had been beat up. He had been falsely in prison. Numerous times by now, his life had been in danger. And this is an opportunity for him to, since he deserved it, stop and just take in the cultural capital city, an opportunity to just drink in the culture. There was a lot for him. Stott continues. He said, of course, he could have walked around Athens as a tourist. He could have, which is what we probably would have done. In order to see all the sights of the town, he could have been determined now that he finally at last had the opportunity to do Athens thoroughly, he could tick off all the spectacles one by one. For all the buildings and all the monuments of Athens were unrivaled by any other city at the time. The Acropolis, the town's ancient citadel, which was elevated enough to see from miles around, that's a big deal 2,000 years ago. It has been described as one vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory of the worship of the gods, lower G. 
Continuing, Stott writes, or Paul could have lingered in the Agora with its many porticos painted by famous artists in order to listen to the debates of its contemporary statesmen and philosophers. For Athens was well known for its democracy. And Paul was no unchurched Philistine. In our terms, he was a graduate of the universities of Tarsus and Jerusalem. And God had endowed him with a massive intellect. So he could have been absolutely spellbound by the sheer splendor of the city's architecture and history and wisdom. But it was not the things of the city that struck him. These were not the things that struck him. Stott writes, it was none of these things that struck him. And there is no lack of the things that could have struck him. So let's make exactly sure we know what it was. It says in the end of verse 16, the thing that struck him was not all of the architecture, all of the artistry, all of the things he could have been involved in and seen. The thing that struck him, he was provoked within himself because he saw that the city was full of idols. The idolatry was what struck him. Not everything else. The city was full of idols. The, the word full of idols in the Greek is just one word. Kaidi dolos. It occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's not even in any old Greek literature that can be found. This word's called kaidi dolos. Full of idols. So when we see here that the city was full of idols, it it doesn't convey for us the full range of meaning in the ESV and the English. Because there's more to it than just saying it was full of idols. Kaididolos means completely covered up by idols. Drowning in idolatry. When Paul walks through the city... Of all the majestic things he could see, nothing strikes him more than the fact that the city is drowning in idolatry. Consider his heart. That he sees a city totally under idols. Swamped by idols. There's an ancient saying in Athens that says, It's easier to find a god in that city easier to find a God in that city than it is to find a man. That's how swamped this city was with idolatry. And as Paul walks around, not as a tourist, but instead as a missionary, what strikes him is not the architecture, not the artistry, not the philosophers, the idolatry. The idolatry is what strikes him. The city was full of false gods to worship. It was a veritable Forest of idols. And that's what strikes Paul. There was a lot. There was innumerable temples and shrines and statues and altars. In the Parthenon stood a huge gold ivory statue of Athena, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Elsewhere there were images of Apollo, the city's patron, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, Ascapolis. The whole Greek Parthenon was there. All the gods of the Olympus. So many idols. So much sin. 
This is what strikes Paul. Please understand that this is exactly the world that we live in. This is the world that we live in. And we have to make a determination. Are we going to be tourists? Are we going to be missionaries? Are we going to be struck by the artistry or by the idolatry? There are false gods beckoning our fellow brothers and sisters of humanity, luring them in all the time, everywhere, at every turn. Our fellow brothers and sisters of humanity, and by that I mean non-Christians, but still our fellow brothers and sisters that are tremendous worshipers. Many of them are likely better worshipers than us. They just don't worship Jesus. But they give their life, they give their heart, they give their soul over to their idol. They live their life, they spend their money, and they give all of their time to their idol only to be killed by it by eternity. And when Paul walks through the city, he's struck by this. And that we should be struck by this. And it should give us great reason to weep for the people. Weep deeply for them. Which leads us to Paul's reaction. As he walked through here, he was, saw that the city was full of idols. In the great city of Athens... Luke describes it this way. And there's no other places in the Bible. So likely when Paul is reporting to Luke how he felt later. When, when he says, this is how I felt. He uses this. It says his spirit was provoked within him. This leads to Paul's reaction. And it leads to what should be our reaction. We cannot be tourists. We have to be missionaries that are provoked. Provoked by the idolatry in our city. But what does provoked mean? If that's what we're supposed to be, what does it mean? What is Paul doing here and what does it mean for us? As I said, this word's very rare. And likely this is the word he says. I was paraxmo. That's how I felt. This is the Greek word provoked paraximo. What does it mean? Because it's how we're supposed to feel about the idolatry in our city. It's how we're supposed to feel. It's supposed to strike us so deeply. It's supposed to cause us to do something. Paraximo. Is it just the feeling of being provoked? Is that all it is? This verse is in the imperfect, which means it's not a sudden feeling that goes away. Instead, it's a continuous, ongoing feeling that does not ever go away. That's how we're supposed to feel. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and whenever it was translated into Greek, that word paraximo, or in this sense, as it is paroxysm, is used in the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint, as they were translating because it's not in the New Testament for us in the Greek, but whenever the Old Testament was being translated into Greek, it's used. And so it gives us an insight of how Paul feels 
and so how we're supposed to feel. When it was translated into Greek, it used this word, but in what context does it use? A lot of times, but one particular instance it's used among many. It's very instructive for us. It says that God, Yahweh, is described to be paroxysm when the Israelites made the golden calf at Mount Sinai. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law and God just wanted his people to be his people. It says that Aaron makes a golden calf down at the base of Mount Sinai. When God saw this, the feeling that he had was paroxysm. So what is it then for us? Because Paul felt this about idolatry. It's exactly how God feels about idolatry. And it's how we should feel. So what does it mean then to be sure? It is a feeling of anger and indignation. It is that. Anger and indignation because the creative artistry that God gave these people in Athens was not being used for the honor and the glory of Jesus. Instead, it's being used for the absolute glory of wickedness. And so there's a righteous indignation and anger, a provoking in him that he has. But it's not just that. There's more to it. Coupled with the righteous anger that God has and that Paul has and that we're supposed to have is immense grief. Immense grief for the people. So intense that there's pain. His whole soul was revolted at the sight of an entire city given over to idolatry. This is a man that lives as a missionary. Such a rich, righteous hatred of idolatry should give birth then for Paul and for God and for us to an inward pain that is so profoundly sorrow, sorrowful. An immense grief that causes us to say, we have to do something. Paul has to do something. He could have done nothing. He was completely by himself. But he had to do something. Remedy, we have to be provoked, immensely grieved by the idolatry in our city. There's lots of things we can be enthralled by. But what should enthrall us most is the idolatry of our fellow brothers and sisters of humanity that don't know Jesus. Paul was deeply saddened in himself when he saw the city was full of idols. And we should look around our city and be deeply saddened and deeply moved by the idolatry in our city. That's being like God. That's how God felt when he looked at Israel. That's how Paul felt when he looked at Athens. That's how we should feel when we look at our city and our country and this world. Knowing that all of this is around us, it has to cause us to do something. A man named Henry Martin said it this way. It would be hell to me that if Christ would always be dishonored in my city by the idolatry, I could not endure existence if Jesus be not glorified. That is paroxysm on display. Do we have this? Are we satisfied living like tourists? Are we going to be missionaries? 
I want to conclude. This is, we're just going to look at verse 16. Because I couldn't get past verse 16 this week. So we're going to conclude this way. As Jordan comes up right now. I want to conclude with this thought. Paul is all alone in Athens. He's all alone. Silas and Timothy aren't there. He could have totally done nothing, felt nothing, and no one would know. No one would know. They get there, they get him, and they take him back to Berea. No one would know. Sadly, to our shame, much like we do every day. We can get away with doing nothing and no one will know. Why? Why can that happen? It's because we aren't provoked. We aren't feeling paroxysm. We're not truly saddened about the idolatry all around us. Paul walked through the city and was broken and provoked and wept because of the brokenness and the idolatry. And it cut him deep. And it drove him. And he had to do something. Do you have to do something? Do you feel that way? I have to do something. Are we going to be tourists? Or are we going to be missionaries? This inward pain that Paul felt, this horror, moved him to share the good news with the idolaters in Athens. Do we have an inward pain? And if so, what are we going to do with it? I want us to end the service this way. I want us to sit and think and pray a bit and ask for God to give us a holy provoking, a paroxysm for our city. A breaking to where we, we can't just do nothing. And after some some personal time, some personal prayer, some personal reflection for us all, then I will lead us further through the service.